Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Howard Burton, host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to present the following Pandemic Perspectives podcast, one of a special series of 24 podcasts that, together with our Pandemic Perspectives documentary and my book Pandemic Perspectives, A Filmmaker's Journey in 10 Essays, make up our comprehensive Pandemic Perspectives project looking at the COVID-19 crisis from a spectrum of different angles. Today's Pandemic Perspectives podcast features Andy Hoffman, wholesome U.S. Professor of Sustainable Enterprise at the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business and School for Environment and Sustainability. If you're wondering how on earth a business professor can also hold an appointment as a professor of environment and sustainability, the answer to that question turns out to be just as revealing and deeply related to why it's so important to listen to what Andy has to say about the vital lessons we can extract from the coronavirus pandemic on how to go about constructing a better world. We've had the good fortune to have several of these conversations, and I'm very happy to pick up on some of the points that you just made during the filming session, insofar as being a half a glass half full guy, because my sense is that you are generally speaking an optimistic person, or at least somebody who's looking as hard as you possibly can for traces of uh, (laughs) circumstances about which you can be optimistic. And sometimes it's it's been a very difficult couple of years for everybody, as obviously doesn't need to be dwelt upon. But you made a couple of comments that I'd like to pick up on in that optimistic vein. The first was your conviction that Notions of recognizing climate change, notions of sustainability, employment possibilities for your students, all of that had been dramatically increased over the last little while. And there seems to be a tipping point that we have moved towards or that has already happened within the corporate sector, as well as nonprofit sector and other sectors and so forth. So my first question, finally, as you know, you know by now it takes me a while sometimes to actually get to my question. So my first question is... Well, to what extent do you think this is associated directly with the pandemic or would have happened anyway? Yeah, it, it's, it's hard to tease out. I mean, there are many things that are happening simultaneously. The level of attention on climate change in the corporate sector, the level of attention on sustainability with my students, it coincides with pandemic. It also coincides with Trump being voted out of office, which is not an insignificant piece of this conversation. And so a data point, during COVID, investors, ESG investors, environmental, social, and governance has gone up dramatically. So people are looking during the COVID to put their money in companies that they see as good social actors. And companies themselves are are recognizing they need to present themselves as good social actors in order to draw that money. The effects of climate change during COVID have become much more vivid and much more real for people, whether it's the forest fires or the droughts or the hurricanes or the tornadoes. We're seeing climate change. More and more people are recognizing climate change is real. If you look at public opinion polls, they're on a continuing trend. They were coming up before COVID and they continue to come up. And the partisan divide in this country on that issue is narrowing. But I also think that the students, again, are coming to these issues, coming to the idea of business as something more than just how to make money. If you went back 20 years ago, students wanted to change the world, went into programs for government and nonprofit management. So they're going into schools of business. The courses I'm teaching on sustainability, I started in 2004. I'd have maybe 30 students, and it was a self-selected group. 
that have chosen to do the dual degree. That was primary in my class. Now my classes are, they're hitting their cap, 72, consistently. And it's more and more just straight business students, not that self-selected group in this dual degree program. And that says to me that more and more students either want to use business to make a difference, they see their career in business as a way to make a difference, or they're simply looking and saying, if I want to be in business, sustainability is an important piece of this. I better learn about this. Yeah. I had a student come up to me this semester and he said, look, I'm not a tree hugger. I'm not a greenie, but I do see that this is really important for how companies are going forward. And I, I need to understand this in order to be an effective manager. I think that that says something right there. So, so I see this shift going. I see this shift happening. And uh, this generation is pushing it. And I would add that employers know this. And so if they want to attract the best and brightest, they have to have positions on these issues. But let me also add that there are interesting conversations going on. I was just involved in a conversation with a multinational oil company. I will not use the name, but it's a name you know. And in the part of the discussion they asked me to part of, they said, what's expected of a greening company in the 21st century? And I came right back and said that question totally undervalues or underplays the challenge before you. This isn't about greening. You have to use your leadership role in order to bring about the end of your industry as we know it. And they didn't, they didn't look at me like I had three heads. They engaged in the conversation saying, okay, how do we do that? What role do we have? Because they have to turn into something else. If you look at Shell, one of their biggest investors, well, not biggest, but a, an investor, third, third point, $500 million invested in Shell, says break in two, where you put your fossil fuel assets over here and you start to direct your energies towards renewables. There's the future. It's almost like a, a model of triage, cut off the sick limbs so you can go forward. They're entertaining this conversation. Yeah. They're going to resist, of course, because there's money to be made, but it's becoming more and more obvious to them that the future does not allow us the luxury of having a company that merely extracts oil, refines it, and sells it as fuel. They have to start to rethink who they are. Yeah. And, and I think there are also lessons in what you're saying to people on all levels of the, of the political spectrum, of the, of the social spectrum. There is this tendency to demonize individuals and demonize companies. So I don't want to come across as, as more right-wing than I am. Yeah. But one of the reasons I was so keen to talk to you all those years ago and why we've kept in contact is because, in my judgment, you're somebody who doesn't perpetuate these ridiculous Manichaean stereotypes of, yep. you know, uh, rapacious corporate bloodsuckers or, <laughs> or right-thinking uh, civil libertarians versus uh, enlightened left people, or or you know tree hugging fanatics, or however you want to however you want to look at it. Two points came to mind as you were talking. One is that corporations are the products of individuals, and while there is an interesting philosophical issue about corporations that are looked at as these entities and are actually defined as these entities that are concerned with the bottom line and so forth and so on. And there are, there are issues there that obviously have to be addressed. The point that I'm making is behind those corporations are actual individuals. Yep. And one has to recognize that no matter what one's political persuasions are. That doesn't mean that one should be naive or that it's easy. But at the end of the day, these people at this oil company or whatever that shall remain nameless that you were talking to, those are individuals. Those are individuals living on planet Earth who also are concerned about leaving a better world or at least a reasonably sustainable world for their children and grandchildren and so forth. And yeah. so I think that has to be 
recognized. And sometimes in the discourse, it's not. Sometimes they're just portrayed as these cardboard characters. So right. the idea that these individuals, they have to make a living like everyone else, but they are at the same time concerned about these issues. I mean, how can you not be? How can you be living in, in 2021 and and not have environmental concerns somehow impinge themselves on your consciousness, right. that's not so surprising. And I guess the second aspect, again, without trying to sound too much like a business prof myself, which has been an accusation never leveled at me in the past, but nonetheless, <laughs> as you're talking, I'm thinking about this idea of capitalism being malleable, which is another theme that you're constantly going on about. You have a company that starts off doing X, and then over time, it winds up doing something completely different. And if you look at the history of capitalism, you see this happening all the time. It's right. uh, Most companies are not of the sort of Ford variety where they started off making cars 100 years ago and they're still making cars today. A lot of companies have changed radically in what they do and how they're structured and what products they're having and how they're interacting. And so the very idea that a company that at some point had been oriented towards energy that was achieved by digging stuff out of the ground and refining it might move into the future where they're still concerned with energy, but energy of a very, very different sort. Anyway, that's my second point. Maybe before I get to another question, which will probably take me another half an hour to enunciate, you might want to comment on that. Sure. Well, two things. Anyone who looks at the problems we face and thinks that business is only the problem is missing, missing the point. If business isn't solving these problems, they won't be solved. It's that simple. Business is the most powerful institution on earth. And they have a capacity to amass and mobilize resources, money and human and technological, to an end. And what that end is, as you said, is defined by the individuals within that organization. Whenever students say, Coke did X or ExxonMobil did Y, I will push back. They are not monoliths. And there are multiple views inside those companies on what the company should do. And they're all competing to try and get their ideas to the fore. And as the world changes around them, it changes the power dynamics and the politics within those organizations towards a particular end. The level of awareness on climate change right now is penetrating these organizations, and they are part of this earth. They are human beings. They have children. They hope will have grandchildren. They want a future for them. And they're seeing where the market is going. I mean, if you look at the investments in the auto sector or the energy sector, I mean, for goodness sake, Tesla's valued at $1 trillion. General Motors is valued at $85 billion. Tesla's worth 10 times, more than 10 times General Motors. Rivian just had an IPO. They haven't even produced a car yet, and they're valued at $80 billion. The market is telling the auto sector where they, go, where they need to go. Same with energy. If you look at the renewable energy companies, the utilities out there, their market cap is on a steady upward trend, and it's starting to rival the majors, ExxonMobil, BP, Shell, whose market cap is on a downward trend. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to put this together. And so the market is shifting, and that's important, and that's exciting. Your second point was, what, what did you draw? I think you touched on both of them. But the, f the first point was about how corporations, uh, are, corporations are aren't monoliths and, yeah. and they're individuals. The second point was about the flexibility of companies themselves uh, yeah. as, as manifestations of the flexibility of capitalism inherently. And, and I think you addressed that. And, but I want to hit on that some more because I recently read a report. It came out from Bloomberg. And they looked at the amount of invested capital in major market shifts and what we're going through right now. So the dot-com boom, it was, I think, about $3 trillion of invested capital for that shift. The shale boom, about $1 trillion. The energy transition we're going through right now, the estimate is upwards of $150 trillion. 
That's invested capital. That's productive capital in this transition. That's the market moving. And I think that's important. And so you can take a look at a company like Shell or BP or ExxonMobil. It is not merely hardware that does what it does to oil. It's a lot of capital that can be and will be redeployed. And it has to be redeployed carefully. Let's imagine you just shut down BP today or Shell or ExxonMobil. There are people that work there. There are people who invest their money there. You can't just simply close it. So transitioning it, redeploying it is the interesting question. And so I'm actually engaged in a project with one of my students. How do we think about this? It, it, it's a fun exercise. Is it like hospice? Do they have to think about themselves going into a place and preparing for the end. And to continue that metaphor, if you believe in an afterlife, then the end of hospice is not the end. It's just right. you become something more, the phoenix rising from the ashes, which I think is a good metaphor. Or is it like triage, like shell and third point, cut off the sick limb so that the rest of the body can live? And as you said, there are other companies that have totally transformed themselves. 3M, a lot of people forget that it's Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing Company, and now they make post-it notes. IBM, typewriter company, now a computer company. Fisher Autobody used to make horse and carriage, and now they make car bodies for automobiles. And then look where you said Ford is a company that is still doing what they did, but they are now facing their critical transformational moment. They're shifting to electrics, but what's right behind that? Autonomous. And autonomous vehicles is all about service, it's about computers, it's about algorithms, it's about software, it's about sensing technology, it's about things that they really have to ramp up quickly and start to figure out how to monetize the service rather than selling you a hunk of steel. And so the whole conversation is how do we disconnect profits from materials? And there's the interesting transformation, and it will leave some behind. You know, in, in the IBM transition, IBM made the shift. Smith Corona and Brother did not. They are gone. Now, their money got redeployed someplace else whether it got returned to the shareholders or the creditors, but they have disappeared and their pieces are someplace else. They are also part of that transformation. Sure. And that's just an inevitable, I would argue, aspect of progress. I mean, there were lots of people that were put out of work for who were you know, cleaning up uh, horse excrement that obviously yeah. didn't have jobs after a while. Well, that's... Right. Uh, Maybe that's not the best example, but anyway. Well, but, but there's an interesting question there because this is $150 trillion is a pretty disruptive transition. And so now we do have some social questions to answer. What happens to mining towns in West Virginia? I mean, the dislocation. People can glibly say, oh, just move and get an education. It's not as easy as, as that. And so we do have to start to think about how do we handle the people that lose their jobs, that, that become depressed, that commit suicide, that take opioids. We can look at it from a humane point of perspective, or we can look at it simply as a, a, a perspective of pragmatic public policy. These people vote. These people are active in their communities. Um, and to simply let those communities die is not good public policy. It's not good social policy. It's not smart thinking in terms of the stability of our society. Okay. So let me tell you what I think okay. about this. I don't think this will lead to any combative nature, but, uh, but so far I've been incredibly deferential. So now I'm going to go out and, <laughs> and, and, and address this question. Good. Because this is, I think it's a really important question. 
My view is that this is an inevitable aspect of technological progress, not, not even just capitalism, but technological progress. I mean, you can imagine even in a state planning uh, society, which I do not endorse, but, but even if you had such a thing, you would also have questions about how do you transition from older technology to newer technology. So my own particular view is this is an essential question on the moral perspective, but it has to be acknowledged. And I think the solution, the only solution that I can envision is this is the role or a key role for government, a key role for not just government, a key role for community services, for philanthropic services, for community engagement. But what you should not do is you should not be lamenting the old aspects of society that will never come back, right. because that doesn't help anybody. Let's take the, exa uh, the example of a, of a steel mill, which is closing, or a mining town, which is closing, as you alluded to. What angers me when I see political campaigns is you see people going around the heartland and saying, this is terrible that our jobs are going to, to China and mines are, are, are opening up in the underdeveloped part of the world or what have you, and they're, they're able to undercut us, and that's why the mine has closed and therefore elect me, and I'm going to do what I can to make sure that the mine stays open or open another mine. I think that's duplicitous in the extreme because it goes against what's in the interests of global capitalism, not just even regional capitalism. It's insensitive. It's, it's basically a lie, and it's in nobody's interest. So I think what you should do is you should say, look, this is terrible. The people who have been miners for a long period of time, their families, the, the, the infrastructure of the community... That has to be acknowledged as a real crisis, and we have to do whatever we can in terms of public policy to support these people, those who can be educated or move on to other careers. We have to pour in services to be able to do that. We have to pour in uh, assistance, psychological assistance. It's very, very difficult. Yeah. But what we have to do is we have to actually recognize it and use either through government offices or, or, or community offices, we have to address it open-eyed so that we can all move forwards. Because guess what? It's just a lie to say that we're going to keep the mine open and your children and your grandchildren are going to be mining just like you did and just like your father did. Right. So what angers me is that, yes, you need sensitivity, but you have to be open and honest about it. And you have to recognize the positive potential and do your best to mitigate against the, the human suffering that, that's going on. I don't disagree with anything you just said. And I can reframe what you said on the idea of pragmatic public policy, because when you have communities that are destroyed by these transitions, transitions that they are powerless to stop, they are ripe territory for populist candidates offering bromides that are totally untrue. Without going too far down this road, Trump could not bring coal back. He cannot. And he can't bring buggy whip manufacturers back either. He can't. And so it was just a way to get votes and people bought into it because they're desperate. But he also was able to do that because it was a vacuum, because no one seemed to care in Washington. They, they looked at a bunch of liberal elites who said, this is great. We're moving towards windmills. And they're standing there saying, well, wait a minute, what about us? Yeah. And they felt that the response back. And I would add, by the way, it wasn't just the left that was doing this. You can see some articles on the right that says that these, these towns just deserve to die. They're just you know, opioid addicted, unemployed, depressed people, and we have to leave them behind. That wasn't only on the left. It was on the right until the right saw that they could get some votes out of this. And so I think that you have to be pragmatic and say, yes, we have to create a safety net and we have to be honest. The future is going in this direction. And 
We also have to be honest with ourselves when those transitions favor perhaps the wealthy. Think about automation. I mean, blue-collar workers lose their jobs, and they are specially skilled jobs that may or may not be transferable to other areas while the automation moves the money and the profits into the pockets of fewer and fewer. Income inequality in this country is, is a ser- and around the world is a very, very serious issue. And these transitions often exacerbate that inequality. Yeah. I think there's an opportunity to make a link here to another thing that you alluded to during the film part of the conversation, which is the surprising degree of purchase that conspiracy theories have received over the last little while. You alluded right now to the notion of people being desperate in a different context, but I'm suggesting that there might be a link there. The willingness that people seem to have, many people, numbers far greater than one might have even speculated in one's darkest moments, to believing in really wild, seemingly crazy conspiracy theories is very off-putting. It certainly exists in the United States. I'd like to say that that's the only place in the world where there's (laughs) any significant purchase that's been given to these sorts of ideas, but that's clearly not true. I was just watching the news the other day, and there was some massive demonstration in Austria against, uh, against vaccines and so forth and so on. Do you think that this is somehow just a a weird moment, the pendulum has swung for whatever reason in a particular direction and will swing back. And people who are adhering to really wacky out there ideas will be truly representative of a very small minority, as one would have imagined. Or do you think somehow this represents moving into the new normal? Well, yeah. So that's question number one. And then, and then part, part B to that question is, what do you think is going on? What, what, what do you think is behind that? Why, yeah. why is that happening now? Why is it happening? I'll refer back to a report from the the RAND Corporation called Truth Decay, and it had four primary conclusions. One is we're debating facts. Two, we're blurring opinion in fact. Three, we're distrusting previously trusted source of information. And four, we've never seen this before to this extent. And social media is a big driver of this. You can go onto the web and find a conclusion, any conclusion you want, you can find it. And so, This coincides, to my mind, with the issue of trust, that third point. People are having trouble trusting these days. They don't trust science. They don't trust government. And that's ripe environment for being fed misinformation that they will latch onto because it's often very simple, it's very clean, and it's very easy. Somebody else is responsible for your situation and if you can just blame them. So social media companies have jumped into that. Uh, there's this idea that the left or the right, you'll talk about monoliths and corporations, the idea that there's this monolithic left or this monolithic right, and actually it makes no empirical sense. There's no such thing, but it makes it easy. It's the left that's doing this to you. And then we become tribalized. And once someone's defined as the left or an issue is defined as the left, the right won't trust it and vice versa. And that's one of the big problems that social media has done to us. Will the pendulum swing back? We're going to have to figure out how to create more credibility, filter information. I mean, when TV and radio first formed, the government doled out licenses in the idea that this was for the public good. TV stations had to show news as a contract to say, we're going to give you this bandwidth. 
you have to provide news. There was also something called the fairness doctrine, that you can't just show one side, you have to show both sides or all sides. And that started to get eroded in the administration of Ronald Reagan. That opened the doors for things like Fox News and going forward, MSNBC, if you want to be equal opportunity about this, of either side putting out information of, of variable quality and creating these tribal communities that I will only listen to my tribe's leaders rather than trying to find information on their own. Could we have a world in the future where people will not only present a fact, but also say, and this is where I got it, and this is a credible source? Will that become part of our lexicon? I'd like to think so. I see young people starting to do this. They start, oh, where'd you get that fact? They, they, they challenge facts. And I think that's an important step in that direction. But the debates we're starting to see over the inordinate power that Facebook and Twitter have in our society are important questions to have. And I do think there's a place for public policy here to say that this is the role that they should be playing in our society and that they do have to take some responsibility for the influence that they have. How we're going to get there, I'm not so sure. But the debate has been engaged and it's an important debate. Well, I think it's important to recognize and to call it out because as I understand it, what you're saying is that if you just take the pendulum model, there's this assumption that, uh, well, that's just normal, yeah. right? That's what happens. That's almost natural law, as you would have for a pendulum. Things switch one way, they go the other way. They're fashions, they're fads. People yeah. like to wear bell bottoms for a decade, and then mm -hmm. they don't. And then two, two decades later, they, they, they flirt with it. I, God knows why. But anyway, they, you know, so you have, you have these sorts of, of situations that happen. But when you're actually looking at, at these companies and social media, there's an argument to be made that they're changing the rules of the game. Yeah. So if, if you're getting your information in such a way that it's predicated upon the information that you've received in the past, and if the, the forces are such that they are driving this, this dichotomy, this social dichotomy, then I think there's a clear argument that, well, you're not dealing with pendulums that are going to reset and go back. You're dealing with a situation which is naturally going to get more and more entrenched. The gap is going to become wider and wider. And if you don't do anything, you're going to have, well, I don't want to be scaremongering and start uh, having intimations of civil war or something, but you're certainly going to have a situation which is structurally resistant to the idea of actually looking at any other points of view than, than your own or your tribe. Right. So that's an that's a obvious concern. So that, that's my, anyway, rephrasement or, or assessment of what it is that you're saying. The metaphor of a pendulum, a pendulum works by gravity. So the further it swings out, the forces will pull it back to the center. I think when we're talking about the institutions of society, gravity doesn't exist. And so what will get the pendulum to swing back when it gets to a point where enough people are disturbed or disgusted by how far it's gone, and therefore they pull it back. And so think about the end of McCarthyism, end of the Red Scare in this country. It got to a point which had that critical moment in when, when McCarthy was scolded, have you no conscience, Mr. McCarthy? And he was eviscerated in that moment. Everyone saw it and they recognized it. This has gone too far. I do believe that if you put the people in this country or most places on the political spectrum, it's a bell curve and the loud voices on the tails are dominating the conversation. And the majority of people in the middle that are being pulled by these forces, that's where the energy lies to say enough of this nonsense. Enough of this black and white presentation of our challenges. They are not binary. 
the idea that if you question capitalism, you must be a socialist is nonsense. Capitalism has many, many forms and, it, and it's shades of gray. And on so many of our debates, there are shades of gray here. And it's the populists right now that have dominated a conversation by presenting easy black and white solutions to problems that they also define as black and white and they're not. Yeah. So at what point will enough people say enough? There's the question. So one, one last question, at least that I have, or at least one last topic. And that's picking up on a comment that you made about trusting science. Yeah. And I always, you probably know this by now, the hairs on the back of my neck always go up when people say these things for all sorts of reasons. I understand why they say it. And I think there's an interesting and complicated issue with respect to trust. But very often what frustrates me is that the distinction between the process of science and the conclusions of science or the present conclusions of science are conflated. Yeah. And I think they're conflated in such a way that it makes science, trusting in science seem very much like trusting in God or trusting in Buddha or trusting in, I don't know, McDonald's potato chips or trusting in <laughs> something else that for whatever reason you're convinced is worth your trust. And there's another side to this that I think, without trying to get into too much hot water, I think has really been exacerbated by the pandemic because it happens a lot in the biological sciences in particular. So let me, uh, let me see if I can come to a conclusion. If we were to look at something like climate change, that's a little bit more mysterious to me. I understand that there are economic issues at play, obviously, and I understand that the cost of going from a fossil fuel economy, certainly 20 or 30 years ago, to a non-fossil fuel economy is enormous and is a huge disruption, and there would be all sorts of actors in all sorts of different areas that would be concerned about that and would be fighting that sort of thing. But when you look at what's represented in the pandemic, when people say, trust the science, yeah. to me, there are several interesting points. Because it's a medical issue, and because it's a very, very personal issue, you know, you take this vaccine and you will, your likelihood of being threatened on your own personal health will be much less. That brings up this weird aspect where people are, there are many other issues at play. So one issue is this idea that, that people confuse the actual result of science with who's actually giving the news, right? It's, well, it's the government that was somehow funding the vaccine, and so therefore I'm opposed to the government, so I'm opposed to the vaccine, and so forth and so on. But on the other side, there's this movement of people that are pointing the finger at somebody and saying, if you don't do this, that you're a terrible person, you're evil, you're a knuckle-dragging Philistine who and clearly is opposed to And that further divides us. That's important. That Absolutely. further divides us. It further divides and it further polarizes. It, it, it launches all these ad hominem attacks. Right. And none of them actually are about the science. And so very rarely do you have this opportunity to say, look at what this vaccine is actually doing. Yeah. Right. Look at what we've actually been able to do. Look at how the mRNA vaccine actually differs from other vaccines. Look at the history of vaccinology and what we've been able to do and the and the progress that we've been able to make and how it works. It's all boiled down into this, you should do this because I say so. And somehow, if you disagree or you want more evidence or you're concerned for whatever reason, then you're, you know, you're a Luddite, you're a Philistine, you're a you're a so-and-so. And and so there's that aspect that I find very, very troubling in the way that the information is often portrayed. And then the, the point that I was trying to make and never quite got to is one of the things that makes this particularly difficult 
is that notwithstanding my rebelling against this idea of trusting in science, which seems to me to in many ways deny the very point of the scientific revolution to begin with and swapping mm -hmm. one god for another, is this idea that when it comes to medical matters, not only do we feel an inclination to do that very thing, trust in science, but the medical authorities themselves very, very often, and for all sorts of reasons, some very understandable, set themselves up as authority figures that you should trust in. Yeah. When you go to see your doctor and you go and you say, doctor, I have a problem with the foot, you're not, you're not expecting to engage in a conversation with the doctor or a dialectical process by which the two of you come to some conclusion. You go to the doctor and the doctor says, this is what you should do. You should trust me. So I think because it's a medical issue, he says, finally lurching to a conclusion, I think this, this very tendentious notion of trust in science, which bothers me in all sorts of different directions, is even more highlighted, or I would say exacerbated, than it, than it normally is. Would you, would you agree or would you disagree with that? No, I think, it, I think it's, it's exacerbated because we're dealing with issues that many people don't experience firsthand. I mean, I can't feel climate change. I can see weather events. I have not gotten sick from COVID, and those I know who have gotten sick got through it. So if I just take my personal experience, that will flavor how I look at the science. And I think many people in our society around the world, first of all, don't even understand what science does. How do they come to their conclusions? And this is important, because when science changes its mind, people say, oh, they were wrong. Well, no, that's not what's happening here. They're gathering more information. They're running their models. Right. And then people say, oh, models, models. It's not real world. But, you know, models make everything possible. You don't build another space shuttle. You use models to see if it's going to work. Models make everything work. And so anytime someone starts to challenge the science on those grounds, you, you, your first question should be, okay, what's their angle? Why don't they want you to trust the science? Why do they want you to trust something else? So I think we need to educate people on, on how science does what it does. And then it does involve a certain amount of trust. I trust that the FDA did its job properly when they approved the vaccine. And when I rolled my sleeve up and they shot the, the vaccine, I did say, I'm, I'm going with science. Uh, that was a choice I made. And, and so I trusted the science. Yeah, but, I, but, but, but hang on for a sec, because you knew all along that if you wanted to, and of course, most people don't want to all the time, and I don't think anybody wants to all the time, but if you wanted to, if you were motivated to get uh, some understanding of what are the requirements for clinical trials, what is the data behind the clinical trials, yeah. Yeah. what are the outstanding cases, what are the statistics, if you were motivated to actually chew through all of that yourself, yeah. you could get that information. Yeah. And so there's an element of trust because you, you have that. It's not like right. trust before a shrine or something like right. that. Right. And who do you choose to get the information from? I'm going straight to the CDC. Yeah. And it takes a lot of work. I mean, I just read Paul Kingsnorth's recent essay and the amount of work I had to do to dissect it. He says it's an experimental drug. I go to the CDC. Is it experimental? No, it's not. That took time on my part. And he walks through Ireland, highest uh, vaccination rate, highest cases, start to look for WHO data. No, that's not true. And so you, you almost have to fact check all your sources of information and then choose the right sources to fact check with. Who do you trust? I trust the WHO. I do trust the CDC. I trust the National Institutes of Health. 
that's where I'm going. And if you read a newspaper article, it's hard work, even on other areas. For example, there's a statistic I've thrown around for a while. It came from the Federal Reserve that 40% of Americans could not pull together $400 in emergency. And then a friend of mine who leans right said, take a look at this analysis from the Cato Institute, which I would normally get nervous by, but they walked through and they said, this is what the question actually said. And this is the way it's been interpreted. And there's a jump there. And I was like, okay, I've been educated and I'm willing to change my mind. Even if it's a right-wing source that told me to do it, I've gathered more information and I've, I've corrected my assessment. Too many people aren't even willing to do that. They grab onto an opinion, they hold it, they will hold it till they die. And that's, that's not being very intelligent in today's complex world either. And they're not, they don't have enough individuals around them, either directly around them or that, uh, with whom they're in contact, who would say exactly what your friend said to you. Yeah. If the only people you're talking to or encountering are people who are mirroring the views that you have, you're never yeah. going to have someone that's going to say, take a look at this report from the Cato Institute, yeah. because you're just, if, if you're a a left to center person or whoever you'd want to describe it, because you just simply wouldn't associate with those people. And so you wouldn't have access to the opportunity to see something which disagrees with your a priori opinion. But then again, also the hard work it takes in our personal interactions, you talking to a friend that you respect and trust who says something that you're not quite sure is true, but you don't have the facts behind you. And that friend has lots of facts to back theirs up, but they may be sketchy. The ability to engage thoughtfully in today's world has become immensely harder because of all the information people can bring forward of varying levels of quality. And we have to be clear about the foundation of our beliefs and not just say what we used to say. Well, Walter Walter Cronkite said it, so it must be true. Walter Cronkite doesn't exist anymore, and he couldn't exist in today's world because we're flooded with too much information of all kinds. Well, that's a, a good point to end on. Is there anything you want to add? I would just add that the future is not certain, and many futures are possible. And that's where my optimism, or I would say my hope comes in. I mean, optimism says these are the odds, and I'm, I'm sure they're going to come out. I can't say that. I can't say we, I am optimistic that we'll address climate change. The odds are not that clear, and I would probably say they're against us. But hope, hope looks at the situation, says, I don't care what the odds are, I'm going to do something. And in many ways, hope accomplishes more extraordinary things in our world than optimism did. I mean, Abraham Lincoln executing the Civil War, the odds were against him, but he persevered. Elon Musk starting Tesla, people thought you're nuts, electric cars won't work. He rolled the dice. Nelson Mandela coming out of prison and not becoming a bitter, hateful man, which most of us probably would have. What made that happen? And so. I am hopeful that we will address the challenges we face. It's our choice. I mean, many of the problems we have, income inequality, that's a choice on how we structure our institutions. Climate change as well. It's a choice. And we can make a different choice if we have enough people. And it's not even just a majority. I mean, you know, Margaret Mead said someone who really believes in something uh, is a majority of one. That's what we're facing. And so I look at my young people and they are rolling their sleeves up. They want to solve these problems. And there are older people that see that energy and want to channel it and, and, and drive change. And, and that's where my hope comes in. Yeah, there's a lot of dark forces in our society right now, but they've always been there. We're just getting a good look at them. And I think it's important that we see them. I really didn't realize that white supremacists were as prominent in number as they, as they are. And, and we need to see that and recognize that. 
and look at it soberly and say, okay, how do we get from here to where we need to go, recognizing the obstacles before us? I think that's one good thing that's happening right now is we're getting a good sober dose of reality. Great. Thanks a lot, Andy. Okay. I really enjoyed this as usual. I did too. I hope you enjoyed this Pandemic Perspectives podcast. Once again, our Pandemic Perspectives documentary, released in early March 2022, is available for rent or purchase through the Ideas Roadshow app. While the accompanying book, Pandemic Perspectives, A Filmmaker's Journey in 10 Essays, is available in print and ebook through all major book distributors and an audiobook on the Ideas Roadshow app. See ideasroadshow.com for more details.